Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. In your pew Bibles, that will be page 849. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And shall ye bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, thank you so much for being with us. You being here is an encouragement to us, and we hope that we can encourage you as we worship and serve God together this morning. Jesus came, according to the Scripture, to save His people from their sins. What a beautiful thought, that of being pardoned from sin. When we think of pardon, it could be defined as... It is the forgiveness of a crime or the penalty associated with it. It is granted by sovereign power such as a monarch or chief of state. Recently, there's been a lot of news, especially around December the 13th, about pardon. Many of you will remember, perhaps all of you will remember, Stanley Tukey Williams. There's a lot of attention given to that case out in California because he was the 12th executed since 1978 in the reinstatement of the death sentence and death penalty in California. But his case brought a lot more attention other than just being an execution because he also was the one that was claimed to be a co-founder and also the Crips, the Los Angeles gang that has done so much harm throughout the years. The fact that he murdered four individuals brought him to the point of going through several appeals but every time, it was denied his stay of execution. Finally, 12 hours before that occasion of 12.35 a.m. of December the 13th, 12 hours before, everyone wondered, what will Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of, of California, what will he do? He made a statement. Probably in wisdom, he went into great detail of the chilling murders of each of those four individuals, a mother and father and daughter, and then a, a clerk at 7-Eleven. He stated all of the evidence, and then he simply concluded that that evidence was strong and compelling, and that he shall be executed. Now, we could study execution from Romans, the 13th chapter, and see that it's the power that God has given governments. But we'll not do that this morning. But I want you to think with me for just a moment. What if you were sitting on death row? And what if in 12 hours you were to be executed? What if in 12 hours you knew that you would be strapped to a chair looking much like a dental chair, leaning partially back, and someone would be thumping for your vein. What if you knew in 12 hours that were to happen unless someone, only one that had the power to pardon you? How wonderful would it be to hear that that individual has pardoned you? 
Think how awesome that would be. From believing that you would only live a few more hours to the fact that now not only would you live, but yet you were pardoned from that crime. You could walk. You would be free. What a beautiful thought. You know, we have something somewhat similar to that, at least definitely that of making an appeal for a pardon. It's that little short chapter of Philemon. Philemon was a master, and he had a runaway slave. Apparently, this runaway slave might have even stolen from him, but definitely while he was at home, he was not a very profitable slave. As he ran away, his path crossed with Paul. Now, you know what happens when people's path crosses with the apostle Paul. They were taught about Jesus. He became a brother in Christ to you and I. He became a child of God. But Paul knew that this runaway slave had to go back and make his wrongs right again. He had to make amends. And wasn't it wonderful that Paul happened to know his owner? He knew Philemon. And he told Onesimus that he needed to go back. But he wouldn't allow Onesimus to go back empty-handed. He allowed him to go back with a parchment in hand with an epistle, with a short letter, a letter that would beg, Paul would beg for the life of Onesimus to be spared. In other words, he was begging Philemon, pardon this man. He never said he wasn't guilty of the crime. He never said that what he had done should, he should never be held responsible. He simply was asking him to forgive him. If you have your scriptures, turn with me to Philemon. And let's look at a few verses out of Philemon, especially verse 10. We're in Philemon, only one chapter long. Look at verse 10. Notice this strong word that he says in 10 as Paul is writing to Philemon. And he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Let's skip down to 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own selves besides. You hear the language here? Paul is sending back this slave that's guilty. He's a runaway. Most scholars would say that a runaway slave that, as he's already said while he was there, was unprofitable to him, that the punishment would be very, very harsh. Others have said that it very well could be the death penalty because they wanted to make a statement to other slaves and other servants. You don't run away from your master. Look what happens when you do. And so it very well could be that he was making a plea for his life. But the point is, he made the statement because he had leverage. He had a relationship. He had something that at that point Onesimus didn't have. 
Paul had a positive, good relationship with the master. And so he makes the appeal, very straightforward, saying, I'm appealing to you. And the appeal is this simple. Receive him as you would receive me. Receive him, and that would do my heart well, Paul is saying. And then, not only the reception there, but it's a substitutionary act that he's asking. Paul's assuming that this man owes the master something. And so he's saying... Whatever he owes, I will pay his debt. Now that's some pretty tall promises from a man that is in prison. I doubt Paul had a lot of money at that time. But what Paul did have was that leverage again. Because he concluded this verse by reminding Philemon what he owed Paul. Apparently, it was Paul that taught him about Christ. Apparently, it was Paul that taught him how to have eternal life. How much value do you place on eternal life? And so he reminds him, he says, listen, you put it on my account, and as you're putting it on my account, be sure you check both sides because you'll look there and you'll see that you owe me a lot more than what I'll ever owe you for what this slave owes. What a beautiful thought. Someone that would step up and make an appeal. Someone that would beg, you receive. Someone that would say, if there's something to be owed, I will pay that, put it on my account. And it's easy to read this and, and even conclude some wonderful doctrinal teachings, and that we should. But I want you for just a moment, as we're about to leave this text, I want you to make sure that you have imagined this in your mind. And no, we don't know exactly how it was that day that Onesimus went marching up to that home. But we know this. He went to that home with this letter. And if you and I are going to truly appreciate what it is to be pardoned, however it might have been, I want you to imagine it in your mind. You've been converted to Christ. You're a runaway slave. And you know that you have to go back and you have to make your wrongs right. And you're dreading going back because you've seen what's happened to other slaves. You've seen the bull whips. You've seen the stops. You've seen the persecution. You've seen the executions. And now you have to go back. And if it were not for this, maybe you wouldn't have the strength to go back. If it were not for this, you would say that this would be the worst thing that would ever happen in your life. What is the this? It's that document. It's that one little document that you and I hold on one page in this book. Can you imagine as he was walking down the road and he could see the house at the distance? Can you imagine Onesimus, how he must have been holding that document? Can you imagine how how important it was to him? Can you imagine if someone would have walked up to him before he reached the house and said, Hey, can, can I borrow a piece of parchment? Let me borrow that. No, you can't have this. I'd give up my life before I would give you this. What is it? At a distance, Philemon sees him. If Philemon had not heard yet, can you imagine the boiling rage of anger that might have come out of Philemon's mouth? Can you imagine the body language as he whistled for other slaves to help him capture this runaway? I see him. He's walking down the road. He's coming this way. Go get him. Wrestle him down. Well, I don't know exactly how it was. 
But there had to be that moment where he finally said, Master, but Master, the Apostle Paul, he asked me to give you this. That parchment. As he began reading. Can you imagine as maybe instead of bringing out the whip, maybe he said, I'll need some time. I'll need to go back and reread this. I want to go back and rethink this. Maybe he even said, I want to go and pray about this. This wasn't what I expected. We don't know how that story ends, but we assume the best. We assume that this man was a faithful child of God, that he would have listened to the plea of the great Apostle Paul, and that he would have honored his request, and that he would have pardoned this man. But the point is, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is eternal death. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for my sin, and He died for your sin. In other words, it's our place. It was substitutionary. It was Paul saying, put it on my account. I'll pay whatever debt he owes. Jesus Christ went to that cross saying, put it on my account. I'll pay the debt. Let's put this thought on pause and let's see the third story this morning of pardon. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew, the first chapter. The text that was so capably read just a few minutes ago. Let's back up and read a few verses just earlier prior to this. And again, I ask you to realize that we're not just reading some pages. We're reading about something that really took place. And again, we don't know all of the details of what was going on in his mind emotionally, but we know that he was human, that is Joseph. And we know that there had to be things going on in his mind. And let's read this and let's try to imagine if you were Joseph, what in the world would be going through your mind You've been betrothed to a pure and faithful young lady that's stronger than just an engagement. It's not quite a marriage yet. But Mary found the favor of God. Said that she was highly favored. It tells us what kind of woman that Mary was. Can you imagine the shock whenever Joseph found out that this woman that had never given him any reason to doubt her faithfulness, all of a sudden he finds that she's pregnant. Let's read here as we begin in verse 18. We're Matthew, the first chapter, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. When Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things. That's where we don't know the details, but I want you to think about that this morning. 
But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You see the first part of what we read until we, we stopped there in 21? The first part was dealing with Joseph and with his emotions. Joseph had to pause and consider these things. Who? Who's the father of this child that Mary's carrying? When? When did it happen? We've been together. There's nothing that has ever made me doubt her. When did this happen? Why? What did I do that caused this to happen? What did I do that neglected her? Can you imagine the boiling anger? Can you imagine maybe the rage? Can you imagine how he pondered? Can you imagine how he thought, I could take this to the public and I could really put her in her place. But then he says, no, I'm just minded to put her away privately. It's too much of an embarrassment for both of us. And the Lord wants to settle Joseph. He says, Joseph, the baby she's carrying is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to marry her. In other words, she's been faithful to you. She's still the woman that you thought she was. Don't be afraid. Go ahead and marry her. And once that is taken care of, the next statement is no longer about just Joseph. The next statement is for all of mankind. She shall bring forth a son... Never before had God been flesh, John 1, verse 1 and verse 14, but God came near in the form of flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten, the Father, and grace, full of grace and truth. To bring forth a Son, we shall call His name Jesus, for He will save, He will pardon, He will save, notice, not everyone, he died for the whole world, but He won't save the whole world. Who's He going to save? He's going to save His people from their sins. And so it is. One of the greatest deliverances of pardon comes to us on this earth in the form of a baby. A baby grows and lives a perfect life. At the age of 30, he begins to teach and to preach, to heal, to perform miracles. He confuses the Pharisees with their mixed-up religion. But he draws disciples to him. He's persecuted even though he had never sinned. And he faithfully marched back to Jerusalem knowing that that would be the place of his execution. Somewhat afraid, he goes into the garden and he prays and the Lord strengthens him, ministering to him by an angel. 
courageously he faces his betrayer, Judas. He's nailed to the cross. And he dies for our deliverance so that we could have pardon. I'd like for you to notice as we go over to 1 Peter. Look with me in 1 Peter, the second chapter. 1 Peter, the second chapter. It's a quote out of the great passage in Isaiah about our Lord. And we're going to pick up in verse 22. This is a passage that's mixed into from the second chapter into the third chapter about submission and why would anyone submit to a master? Why would anyone submit to a husband? Why would children submit to their, their parents? And it's all about submission and showing us how Christ came to this earth to submit. But I want you to notice in 22 as we read it, Talking about Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself, now notice this, to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were Did you notice at the end of 23, he says, to him who judges righteously? God cannot overlook sin. I need to hear this this morning loud and clear. God cannot on the day of judgment say, I tell you what, you're guilty of sin and and you shall be lost and and you're guilty of sin, but I'm going to go ahead and save you. The righteousness of God demands justice. And it's consistent. And so we have a problem because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We need someone to step in and become our sin for us. And that's what he is talking about there in 23 when it says he bore our sins in his body. But then who? For everybody in the whole world? He offered it for everyone in the whole world, but not everyone responds. And so notice who's going to receive this. In 24 he said that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Now notice on each side of that phrase, those that have died to sins, in other words, repented, those that have set their life on living a righteous life, those are the ones that He took their sins and He bore their sins in His body. Following that phrase, those are the ones whose stripes are healed. By His stripes, they are healed. You see the point? Those that are pardoned are those that have turned away from the world and they have fully submitted to the will of God. Those that are striving to live by the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean that we're saved by works. We're saved by grace. But grace only reaches to those that receive it. For example, did you know that even in our courts, there's been quite a bit of a debate throughout the years of whether or not someone has to accept a pardon. In 1915, a fellow's last name was Burdick. 
He was the editor of the New York Tribune. He had information, and he would not give up this information. And so he was sentenced. But finally, the attorney general came up with the idea that says if we pardon him, he'll then talk, and we'll get the information we need. So they wrote him out a pardon, and they sent it to him. He rejected the pardon and sent it back. The question then in the courts was this. Is it a pardon if it's offered but not received? And the result that has never been overturned since 1915 is this. No. A pardon can be offered, but the one has to decide if they will receive it. Friends, that dates way back further than 1915. That dates back to Jesus Christ, where Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, and He offered the whole world, will you be saved? But so many people reject it. Oh, it's offered. It's offered by all. But so many reject. The reason many reject is because they believe that in accepting it, it proves their guilt. That's why Burdick wouldn't accept. He said, if I accept that pardon, it proves that I was guilty. As we extend this invitation, I want you to think with me for just a moment. Jesus spoke about the way into heaven, and then he said, wide is that way that leads to eternal death, and many will go in thereat. But when he spoke of eternal life, it was narrow, and it was difficult. And he said, few there be that find it. When he spoke of grace in Titus, the second chapter, he spoke that it was offered to all men, but only those that were willing to deny ungodliness and move to God to accept godliness would be the ones that would accept it. Friends, as we're about to sing this invitation song, I want you to think with me. If you knew that you were going to be executed in 12 hours, what would you do? And someone immediately says, well, I know what I would do. I'd accept a pardon if someone offered it to me. It's not that simple. There's more people this morning rejecting a pardon than accepting it, and it's a lot worse than physical death. Thank God that we have a Savior. A Savior that's made His appeal to God on our behalf. A Savior that wants the Father to receive us. A Savior that is a substitutionary payment for us. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins, won't you do that this morning? If you've done that, but yet you've strayed away from God, won't you come back to Him? Let's make sure that we leave here this morning. Loving and living for the one that can pardon us. She shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. If you're not one of his, won't you become this morning? Come as we stand, as we sing.